able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I've, uh, I've mentioned to you before the fact that until I was about seven, I was a preacher's kid. We lived in Chillicothe, Illinois, just outside the bustling metropolis of Peoria. There's a lot of farm country and uh, caterpillar heavy equipment. It was a nice small town life. Lazy walks with my mom down to BB's diner for lunch on a spring day, watching my dad play softball with humid evenings at Shore Acres Park. It was great. It was a great life. And we've lived, as I mentioned before, that um, in, in this parsonage in which the, the parsonage was on top and then in the basement was the church, which I, I suspect was pretty handy for my dad work-wise, and perhaps maybe a little bit too handy for my mom uh, sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to get a good uh, work-life balance when you live on top of the headquarters, right? But I liked it. It was home. It was, uh, it was great. It was on this big three-acre plot that was filled with clover, and uh, it had this big garden in the back that my dad used to plant to help supplement his salary. And then on, on, on the west side of the building, there was this gravel parking lot bounded by railroad ties. And, and my brother, Darren, and I spent most of our days outside running around those three acres, chasing bumblebees, the, small, the size of small dogs, out through the clover. And then in playing trucks in the sandbox that some of the men at the church had built for us or running feverishly to keep the baseball out of the garden after errant throws, that kind of thing. And of course, there was vacation Bible school, which I loved at that point, you know, sword drills and baptisms in a rented horse trough. I love being a preacher's kid. And, and when I describe it, I, I, 
it, I guess it kind of sounds idyllic, and by and large, it, it was, at least to me. I mean, I got bee stings and chicken pox and that kind of stuff, but I mean, those things seemed like minor trade-offs for a childhood that, that felt so protected and secure. Uh, it, it was a world that I was somehow aware existed. Um, it was out there, and it was always kind of potentially threatening, uh, but I felt protected from it. Looking back, safety and security were crucial at that point in time, during those tumultuous 1960s. The world was undergoing significant shifts viewed as necessary and thrilling by uh, many of the folks in the booby, uh, baby boomer generation before mine, but, but also felt vaguely unsettling and uncertain to everybody else old enough to have even a clue about what was happening. So, I mean, think about it. A lot happened in the first few years of my life. The, the height of the civil rights movement, followed by the assassination deaths of two of its most prominent leaders, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, and one of civil rights emerging supporters, Bobby Kennedy. Vietnam was at its bloodiest, prompting many to question their casual trust in a government that they, that, 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 that they had always thought knew what it was doing before. Riots in cities across the country, riots at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, which locked the nation in, in dread of what might be coming next. And, and who might it be coming for? The psychedelic generation celebrated new heights of consciousness and new lows in physical hygiene. During those turbulent years, we landed a man on the moon and were introduced to Charles Manson and the horrifying prospect of crazed hippies wandering around in the dark of night, breaking in on the unsuspecting and butchering them in their sleep. And even as young as I was, I, I, I felt somehow, I felt a, a vague sense that politically and culturally things were very much up in the air. I mean, who, who knew what was going to happen? Which made my, my, my relatively quiet childhood that much more precious. I mean, I had the feeling that I lived in a safe place, watched over by competent people. We had a church in our basement for crying out loud. I mean, I couldn't have been much safer if I lived next to Batman, right? Or, or if our next door neighbor was like Sheriff Matt Dillon or something. But then one day, my mom and dad sat my brother and me down, and they told us that we were going to move. And my dad was going to take a job managing a Zondervan family bookstore in the newly built mall in South Bend, Indiana. So to sum up, I, we had to leave the safe confines of our home and church in bucolic Chillicothe, Illinois. My dad decided to quit being a minister. and. This meant that I would have to adapt to a, a new life in a different state, far away from the secure place that I'd relied on to protect me from all of the uncertainty of the future. Did you ever have something like that happen to you? The whole world gets upended. I suspect that Peter, James, and John in our gospel this morning might have understood my apprehension a little bit. 
But before I get into that, let, let me step back for you just for a moment and set the stage a bit. See, our text this morning is the study or is the story of the transfiguration. It's that episode in Jesus' ministry when he and a handful of his disciples trudge up a high mountain so that Jesus can pray. And in the midst of it all, Jesus' clothes start glowing a blazing white, and all of a sudden, long-dead Jewish prophets Moses and Elijah show up and start having a committee meeting right there where they plan to build the campfire, just right in the middle of camp. Now, the disciples were horrified. Because of course they were. <laughs> Not every day this side of height Ashbury, do you see something as bizarre as this, right? And then, and, and then Mark says, a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Now, look, I don't know if I, about you, but if I'm Peter, James, and John, I got that whole shaggy and scooby-doo thing going on where they see the snow beast and their legs start cartwheeling in a circle as they scan their surroundings looking at how they can make their exit. But, 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 but somehow, in the midst of this terror, Peter says something that appears completely out of character for the harrowing scene that they find themselves in. I mean, this is really unnerving. But Peter says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let, let us make you three dwellings, one for you, Moses, and Elijah. You say, well, wait, wait, what? I, I mean, why is it good for us to be here? The whole scene looks like it's been ripped from some kind of mystic fever dream. Now, to know why Peter might have been motivated to set up tents at the Pink Floyd night at the Lazarium, we need to know what happened before and after Jesus and the three amigos took their hike up the mountain. See, because just prior to our text for this morning, Mark has Jesus in this <clears throat> rather grim but famous discussion uh, about what's coming next. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. You remember what comes next after Jesus' little outburst of sunshine at this point? You remember what he says? Peter takes him aside and he says, Look, under no circumstances is that going to happen to you, Jesus, Okay. And, 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 of course, Jesus replies by saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So, okay, that's pretty bracing news to the disciples, that their beloved leader is about to be executed by the state. I mean, yikes, right? But I suspect that it's what comes next that, that, that really spooks them. Because Jesus says, If any want to become my followers... Let them deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? That sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? 
I mean, next thing we hear, Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John on a little excursion up the mountain, which is where our story for this morning takes place. You can imagine that the whole hike, these three disciples have Jesus' words rattling around in their brains. You want to follow me, you can expect the same treatment. I'm pretty sure I'm headed for a humiliating and painful death at the hands of the oppressors of our land. Oh, and you'll probably die alone, abandoned by everybody you love. So then they get to the top of the mountain, they see this great light show, and they're in the presence of Jesus, two revered prophets, and surrounded by the voice of God. They have a sneaking suspicion about what lies in wait for them when they have to leave the mountaintop, and it's not going to be fun for anybody. So with the uncertainty Jesus has just laid out for them about picking up their crosses and dying as enemies of the state, Peter sees the ancient Near Eastern version of the Justice League all wearing their technicolored dream coats, and he says, you know what, all things considered, this seems like a really swell place to be. I mean, why don't we just pitch a few tents right here? I mean, we could make it really nice, you know, got a glamping stuff, like, 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 like Hermione Granger nice. I mean, everything right there for you. There's no need to get up, uh, to go getting all eager about leaving this place, heading out into a dangerous world. Why don't we just stay here? I mean, really, Jesus, if, if it's all the same to you, we're good right where we are. Now, I totally get why the disciples would rather just watch Jeopardy than head down the mountain into an untenable political environment that we know, because we've read to the end of the story, is going to cost Jesus everything. My friend uh, Shonda, Ja, used to work on the West Coast at the Oakland Peace Center, which she helped to found. She shared a note one time from an immigration attorney across the bay over in San Francisco. And it seems the attorney was accompanying his client uh, to an asylum hearing. Now, seeking asylum, despite what some benighted political leaders in our country say, it is a process that the United States has traditionally used to protect immigrants fleeing violence and persecution in their own countries. Immigrants who, if they were to return, would be in danger of becoming political prisoners or perhaps even killed. Now, at an asylum hearing, it's usually granted after two and a half to three year wait, by which time any visitor visas have almost certainly expired and the person is in the country without documentation, but everybody already knows that. And we've always known that because the asylum process takes time to work out. The undocumented status is therefore overlooked while the asylum seeker awaits a ruling from the judge. That only seems fair. As the attorney pointed out, the whole thing's supposed to be non-adversarial. You don't want people to be afraid of the process if they need it for protection. Well, in the case that Shonda was writing about, the judge at the asylum hearing heard this case and, and promised a ruling within the next couple of weeks. It's a pretty standard operating procedure. 
And typically, the asylum seekers return to their lives in anticipation of a ruling from the judge, unconcerned about being snatched up in an immigration raid. Right? That's sort of the unwritten rules. But in this case, the asylum seeker from Sudan was met by ICE agents just outside the courtroom and immediately taken into custody to await a deportation hearing. The asylum status now superseded by deportation hearings. The attorney said he was never, in all of his years in practicing immigration law, he's never seen anything like this level of aggressiveness from the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. The man had a young daughter who was born here and who is therefore a citizen. His wife and his brother, brothers all have green cards. He's never been convicted of a crime in the United States. And if he were deported, he would face certain political retaliation. That feels like exactly what the system was set up to protect, right? That kind of person. In fact, a few years back in 2016, DBCC uh, was an emergency sponsor for a Saudi Arabian Muslim couple here on a student visa, if you remember, right? The reason for the emergency was that they were lesbians who'd been outed by their families back home in Saudi Arabia, and they were afraid of strict retaliation here. So, obviously, scary times and an uncertain future face all of us, not just through that part of the system, but all kinds of things, social, legal, and political norms that are being upended daily. I mean, racism lurks in the shadows, poverty, homophobia, transphobia, homelessness, misogyny, ableism. They seem ready to jump scare us at every time we turn a corner. COVID's on the rise again, right? The nuclear countdown clicks, uh, ticks closer to midnight. The planet is warming at an alarming rate. War in the Middle East, war in Ukraine. Democracy feels dangerously threatened. And I come to church and I think, it's good for us to be here. Especially when here, feels at least marginally safer than out there. And we could just stay here, right? On the mountaintop, pitch a few tents, ride out the storm while the rest of the world tears itself apart. But the problem is, by the time we get the tent put up, Jesus is already headed back down the mountain into the chaotic mess that he awaits him down below. So, so it's no longer a good thing for us to be good in here because Jesus is headed out there. But why does he leave? Why does he leave when it's just safer to stay here? Well, Jesus goes down the mountain into the valley of the shadow of Lent because that's where his presence is needed most. Because that's where the last, the least, and the lost scramble to survive, down there. I suspect that he goes down there because he's heard the voice of any number of people crying out 
fear and anxiety, praying, hoping, yearning. I suspect he's heard the voice of a Sudanese man torn by the power of the state from his wife and child being forced back into the meat grinder that he thought he was leaving behind. Jesus hears all of that, I suspect. And he heads down there because that's where the action is. Where the tempest-tossed live in fear of the night. Down there. Out there. And if we're going to call ourselves by his name, even though it is good for us to be here, we need to follow him out there also. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.